Okay, Caitlin, so I want to read you something that I was reading the other night in bed. Okay. It comes from another person in quarantine. Mm. It's in a city that's been hit really hard. Lots of people are dying. There's not enough room for all the bodies. Ooh. I've come to the conclusion that the best thing for us to do in our present situation would be to leave the city. We should go and stay on one of our various country estates, having as much fun as possible, feasting and making merry. There we will hear the little birds sing and see the hills and plains turning green, the fields full of wheat undulating like the sea, and thousands of kinds of trees. There we will have a clearer view of the heavens, which are so much more attractive to look at than are the walls of our empty city. Moreover, the air is much fresher in the country. Although the peasants are dying there in the same way the city dwellers are here, our distress will be lessened if only because the houses and the people are fewer and farther between. So, Caitlin, what is this bringing up for you? (laughs) What does this make Mm. you think of? Escape from the city. I mean, I like the sound of undulating wheat and nature and feasting. (laughs) Right. Um, Apart from the dying peasants, it all sounds great. Yes. As that word peasant might suggest, this was not written recently, though doesn't it feel like it could be in a lot of ways? Yes. It was written in the 14th century in Italy. It's The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, and it's considered one of the major works in the Western literary canon. I actually think I might have read it in college, though I have no memory of it. It's, of course, about the Black Death, the bubonic plague. And that is something that has always felt so far away to me. It's I feel embarrassed to say that it's pretty much like a caricature in my mind. When I think of the Black Death, it's like illuminated manuscripts and people wearing weird masks with long noses. It doesn't feel very real. But that passage when I was reading it totally reminded me of the headlines that started showing up a couple months ago in late March and early April. New Yorkers, stay away. About wealthy people in New York City fleeing the coronavirus to their second homes. I remember those, yeah. Every weekend that goes by, more and more people are coming up. Town officials say half the summer homes are already occupied. New Yorkers lucky enough to have second homes in the ritzy Hamptons are making some locals there very concerned. Concerned. Fleeing for the Hamptons. Exactly. Or to those luxury resorts. I read about one place that was offering pandemic add-ons like a $500 coronavirus test or a round-the-clock nurse for almost $5,000. There's one resort that's doing this called Le Bijou. The jewel in French. Indeed. And so wealthy people are riding it out in their summer homes. But meanwhile, there are people on the lower end of the economic spectrum who cannot do these things, who are living in extremely crowded conditions. I talked to a person who lives in a homeless shelter who was talking about the single elevator they have that about a thousand people in the homeless shelter use. And it's a four and a half by five elevator and seven, eight people will get on and there is somebody pressed up against your chest in front of you. There's no capacity to social distance in any of the common areas at all. The way it feels is like being forced to drive for hours with a drunk driver. It's scary. It's reckless. And you have no choice. Sheltering in place in a homeless shelter is a lot different than in a Hamptons estate. But these divisions aren't new. In fact, how you experience quarantine has depended on your place in society ever since there have been quarantines. 
Welcome to The Uncertain Hour. I'm Chrissy Clark. And I'm Caitlin Esch. And we are here in your ears with something a little different than our normal show, a sort of pop-up bonus emergency podcast season. Because if there ever were an uncertain hour, we've been living in it lately, you know, since the virus happened and the world went sideways. We wanted to seize this moment where the fallout of the coronavirus is bringing up so many questions about wealth and poverty, questions that we think a lot about on this show. We're calling it A History of Now, And this is episode two, all about the wealth and poverty history of quarantine. So we're going to take a little time machine tour of quarantines through history, to the bubonic plague outbreaks in 14th and 17th century Italy, to a typhoid outbreak in New York in the early 1900s, and a few other stops along the way. And we're going to talk about how quarantines in those moments might affect you differently if you were, say, an immigrant or a Jewish textile merchant or a sex worker. We're going to talk about what quarantines reveal about inequalities already lurking in society. And we're going to talk about how ideas have evolved about what the government owes people who are quarantining, which involves fennel sausage. And in true quarantine style, this episode is being recorded in my closet. And where are you, Caitlin? I'm in my bedroom, surrounded by couch pillows. So we got to wondering, is what we're doing technically a quarantine? What counts as quarantine? Yeah, and where does the word come from, quarantine? Yes, exactly. So Erin McGlocky is a historian of early modern European history at the University of Sheffield in the UK. And she says that the word quarantine goes back to the Black Death, the first wave of plague that hit Italy in the mid-1300s which is right around the time that the Decameron was written. It comes from the um, Venetian or Italian word for 40 days. They decided to keep the ships that were coming into Venice. Venice was a major trading center. They decided to keep the ships that were coming into Venice out in the lagoon, kind of shored off of one of the islands there for 40 days. 40 days is a really interesting number. Um, It refers to the number of days that Christ was out in the wilderness. It refers to the number of days that Noah was um, afloat on his ark. But as other writers have suggested, 40 days might be less of a kind of specific number and more of a kind of gesture at a very long time. Sounds familiar. Some of us have been staying at home for going on two months, even more than 40 days. But I've still been wondering, is what we've been doing technically a quarantine? And I wanted to get a better sense of what actually makes something a quarantine or not. So I talked to a couple of writers, Jeff Maino and Nicola Twilley, and they've been writing a book for the last 10 years about the history and the future of quarantine. We sold it under the name The Coming Quarantine, and um, we started working on it, uh, you know, several years ago. And then, of course, the quarantine came. And so it's been really weird for them because now all this stuff that they researched from history, stuff that seemed so antiquated, is now super current and relevant. Yeah. It reminds me of the way that people, like when they've been really into an obscure band that they've loved for a long time and suddenly it gets popular, you're like, oh, I was into quarantine way before it was cool. It's so surreal that everyone's interested in quarantine now because really... No one was. When we went to the World Health Organization on our research, they almost laughed at us that we wanted to talk about quarantine because they they regarded it as this medieval tool that we didn't have to use anymore. Wow. I, I almost want to, you know, find that woman and sort of be like, ah, see? <laughs> and Nikki told me that 
yeah, we basically have been in quarantine. We're staying at home because we don't know if we've been exposed or not. She says that's really the thing that distinguishes quarantine. It's an effort to prevent the spread of disease by separating people before you know whether they're sick or not. Quarantine is all about uncertainty. Quarantine is a situation that takes place until you're proven healthy or sick. Once you're sick, you're isolated. Once you're healthy, supposedly you should be free to move around. But quarantine means we don't know. And for that reason, you are sort of uh, assumed guilty or treated as guilty until proven innocent, as it were. And sure, it makes sense from a public health perspective because you want to prevent the disease from spreading while you're finding out whether someone is a carrier or not. But treating people as guilty until proven innocent also means that people in power have been able in some moments in history to kind of weaponize quarantine. There are these moments where quarantine could be used against certain groups by taking suspicions and stereotypes about perceived differences and running with those suspicions. To impose quarantine, you have to suspect that someone might be uh, a carrier of disease. The minute you sort of invoke suspicion on that level, it is something that is misused because quarantine is a condition that uh, sort of requires suspicion that someone might be unhealthy. It, it allows room for bias. So that, and, and the poor have always been seen as dirty and, you know, not hygienic. So it's been used that way historically um, to keep people out, to put a barrier in the way of people coming in. Um, and that, that's just a recurring feature of quarantine is its abuse. Which brings us to this whole set of troubling moments through history where quarantine has been abused, as Nikki puts it. How at various times it's been used against people with less money, fewer resources, less power. And Caitlin, you have been talking to people about this. Yeah, I mean, back to the plague example, when the plague returned to Italy in the 17th century, Poor people were thought to be vectors of transmission because their bodies were thought to be vulnerable to disease. Health officials imposed a general quarantine all throughout Florence, but not every community was treated the same. Some groups were thought to be, quote, inclined toward putrefaction, as a writer at the time put it. Wow, that is quite a phrase. Here's Erin McGlocky again. I think this idea that uh, a pandemic is a social equalizer is absolutely wrong. Like, it absolutely had um, uneven effects across early modern society. One group that was especially marginalized were Jewish people who were sealed in the ghetto before general quarantine measures took over. They thought that the plague would kind of fester in the black cloth hats that Jewish uh, members, members of the Jewish community wore. The trade, which a lot of Jewish people in Florence relied upon, which was uh, the trade of secondhand clothing, because of this idea that the plague was kind of rooted in textile exchange or textile trade, was shut down, so they were deprived of their livelihood. Of course, when it comes to the parallels with today, the idea of using quarantine to target certain people is a little different, because with the coronavirus in the last few months, most of the whole country has been in some sort of quarantine. It's been much more of a blanket application. But even still, 
There have been examples of uneven enforcement, for example, with social distancing rules. In New York City, the New York Times reported in early May that 35 out of 40 arrests for violating the rules were Black people. There's similar dynamics that have been reported in Ohio. Even though in some places we've seen crowds of protesters, mostly white people, gathering to demand the government reopen the economy. So this uneven enforcement of quarantine is something that comes up again and again throughout history. And that idea of suspicion also comes up in the way that quarantine has been used against sex workers. Nikki told me about how sex workers are often cracked down on during periods of quarantine. Those rules can be another tool to get people off the streets, have them pay fines for violating the quarantines. And actually, in the early 1900s in the U.S., there was this government-backed quarantine campaign called the American Plan that was intended to prevent the spread of STDs. A lot of women were quarantined to prevent them from, you know, they were suspected of being carriers of, of venereal diseases or uh, potentially infected, and they would be quarantined so as not to spread that, whereas their customers were able to go free. Obviously, it takes two to tango. So in terms of the spread of venereal diseases, you could have gone after their customers, but no. Another group of people you see targeted both today and in the past is immigrants. Health screening as a way to prevent disease from entering the country has been used to deter immigrants for centuries. Italian immigrants were accused of starting a polio outbreak in Brooklyn in the early 1900s, even though there was very little evidence suggesting that they started it. They were severely quarantined. The same thing with Chinese immigrants to the West Coast who were blamed for a cholera outbreak. In the 1830s in New York, there were theories about how cholera was caused by consuming alcohol, and people blamed the spread of the disease on poor Irish immigrants who were seen as drinking too much. They were targeted with quarantines. So governments can go too far, but you can also look back at times in the past where it's murkier and some pretty harsh government actions might seem justifiable. I'm thinking of the story of a poor Irish immigrant named Mary Mallon. She came to the United States in the late 1800s. She was a domestic worker, and she became a cook for some very wealthy families. And in a lot of houses she worked in, there would be a typhoid outbreak. Mary Mallon was, of course, Typhoid Mary. Oh, I don't think I knew there was an actual Typhoid Mary. Yeah, the tabloids gave her that unflattering nickname. She was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid, which meant that she never got sick and her body never cleared it, but she could unknowingly spread it to others through the food she made, specifically her peach ice cream. And there was a sanitation engineer with the health department named George Soper who suspected her of causing the typhoid outbreak. So he tracked her down and convinced the health department to have her arrested and brought into quarantine. I'll read you a little something that he wrote. I called Mary a living culture tube and a chronic typhoid germ producer. I said she was a proved menace to the community. It was impossible to deal with her in a reasonable and peaceful way. And if the department meant to examine her, it must be prepared to use force and plenty of it. Wow. I feel like that just would have been written a little bit differently if... He was talking about someone with more money or more power. That's very harsh words. But I guess you can also understand why 
they would want her in quarantine if they think she's infecting all of these people. Yeah, she was causing all these outbreaks. You know, she was released after a few years under the condition that she stop cooking. And it seems that for a time, she did make money doing laundry and ironing. But then she went back to cooking, probably because it paid more and she had to support herself and eat. And then she caused another outbreak. After that last outbreak, she was taken into isolation again on North Brother Island, where she was held for more than 20 years until she died. Oh, wow. Living in isolation for 20 years is very intense. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to think that maybe Mary Mallon's story could have ended differently if the government had paid her not to cook, then maybe she wouldn't have gone back to cooking. And stopped infecting people and not spent 20 years in lockdown. And that gets to the question, what does the government owe you when you've been ordered to quarantine? Right, the quarantine contract, it's called sometimes. You're being asked to give up a lot for the greater good. So is it the government's responsibility to pay for that? More on that after the break. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Before the break, we were talking about the quarantine contract, this idea that if you're forced to quarantine, the government owes you something. And back in plague times in 17th century Florence, there was this recognition that if you force people to stay home, if you police them and lock them up in their houses, you need to feed them. You need to make sure that they can survive so that they don't have to go out, so they don't have to work. And the Sanita, the health department, actually delivered food and provisions to more than 30,000 people for the duration of the quarantine. That, like, sounds so progressive, <laughs> you know, like the, and, and, the, and also very, um, very expensive. Right, right. I know it is progressive, but I guess it was also very, it's very basic in a way. It's like if you cannot eat, you will probably leave your home. Right. And if you're thought to be a vector of disease transmission, that's bad. So here's Aaron McGlocky, the historian, talking about how bad the famine was right before the plague. There are some really like poignant passages and some by some kind of contemporary observers about children, you know, eating the roots of cabbages and things like this in the street during that time. And then when the plague hit, people were forced into quarantine. They were shut up in their houses. There were bars placed across the doors. This was a measure that was enforced by the Sanita, by the health board. But here's the thing. Those health officials, the Sanita, delivered bread and about a pint of wine to every person every day. 
And then every week, they also delivered meat and sausage with pepper and fennel and cheese, rice, and firewood. So there was a really rich diet compared to those cabbage stalks that people might have been living off before the plague. And like you were saying, Chrissy, on the one hand, this approach is really progressive, and it sounds like a welfare state. And on the other hand, the folks are being very heavily policed. Here's Aaron McGlocky again. There is a kind of rhetoric of intolerance towards the poor, that they were responsible for spreading disease, that their bodies were kind of physically culpable for disease. There's even a doctor at the same time who says that the poor fester disease in their bodies. But at the same time, they're providing this, this welfare, which is really in a kind of paradoxical way, dependent on that intolerant language, because if the poor's bodies are vulnerable, then they need better food, right? And then on top of all of that, they're also policing them and fining them for breaking quarantine and some of the money that they're fining the poor for breaking quarantine in all kinds of ways is actually going to help provision them with food. So there are all these kind of circles of ambiguity around around that. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like you point out, it was also very expensive. And then in 17th century Florence, just like today, there was a backlash against this kind of support, this kind of welfare. There were many people who opposed that richer quarantine diet of sausage and cheese and argued that it would rob the poor of the will to work. Some of the kind of um, anti-quarantine faction within Florence, within the Sanita, argue that um, people who are allowed not to work, you know, are sort of yeah, kept off of work for 40 days during during the general quarantine. They would become lazy. They would lose the will to work. Um, that kind of welfare just would destroy a kind of work ethic or, or um, a kind of routine of work. Huh. That's so uh, resonant with some of the debates that have been going on today. I mean, for one thing, even today, federal law in the U.S., actually requires kind of the same thing that was happening in Florence, that CDC regulations require the government to pay for quarantine if it is required by CDC. Nikki pointed this out to me. Under federal quarantine regulations, uh, the CDC is responsible for your food and your accommodation, and these rights are sort of embedded in involuntary quarantine. You're being asked to sacrifice your... Um, freedom of movement and your liberty, as it were, temporarily in the service of the public good, and and thus you are recompensed for that sacrifice um, by being given, you know, food, accommodation, all the things you need to survive. It actually makes me wonder if one of the reasons that we haven't heard a whole lot of the word quarantine coming from the federal government, at least as it applies to what we've all been doing, is like if we haven't technically been in quarantine, maybe that takes off the table this whole idea of a formal legal obligation the government might have to cover our food and our housing. Yeah, I mean, according to the CDC, the last time there was a large-scale quarantine that was enforced was during the flu pandemic of 1918-1919. And more recently, federal isolation or quarantine orders have only been invoked a few times, like in the 60s for smallpox, and then now, on a small scale, some of the people who'd been in China earlier this year or on those cruise ships, they were under official quarantines. But for the rest of us, it's been a lot more vague. It's like quarantine-ish, not, not yeah. actual quarantine. <laughs> right. But it's also interesting that like some of these same concerns that people had in Florence, the quarantine skeptics, about the risks of helping people in poverty 
those could be like lifted and put right into the debates that we're having today. Like the recent debates that we had over expanding unemployment benefits uh, in the time of coronavirus. Under this bill, as it's written now, the government will pay many Americans more to be on government assistance than they would make if they're working at their regular jobs. We cannot pay people more to not work than to work. This is basic common sense. Imagine that. Somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour, now like the rest of us, faces an unprecedented economic crisis, might be making a few bucks more for four months. Oh my word! Will the universe survive? Well, it was obviously a very different world, but back to 17th century Florence, the quarantine diet may have been effective. I mean, Florence had a much lower death rate from the plague, around 12% compared to other Italian cities that did not provide a lot of food or support, where more than half of people died. I mean, there were cities in Italy where upwards of 60% of the population died from the plague. So maybe these diets were effective. It's impossible to know for sure. Whether it's with unemployment insurance and expanding it or some sort of quarantine stipend, like if we don't give people a way to support themselves during a quarantine or a stay-at-home order, people are going to be left with these impossible choices. And when you talk to people who are working right now, all the essential workers that we've talked to, grocery store workers, workers at chicken plants, express this dilemma they have between staying at home and staying safe but not being able to make ends meet versus going out into the world and possibly infecting themselves or others. I still have family that are very susceptible to this, and I don't want to bring this around them. But if I had to put myself in danger just to get food on the table, then that's what's going to have to happen. So you don't get sick days, right? No, we don't get no sick days. We're taking a big risk, you know, just working without masks. Nobody has masks because they've been running out of masks. We are really close and uh, we're exposed too much, but they want us to keep working because we have to provide food for the United States. In quarantines of the past, one of the common themes we've been talking about is how poor people, marginalized people, have often been targets for harsher quarantines. But it almost feels like today with the coronavirus, that dynamic has flipped. Yeah, I mean, it seems like today the opposite is true, that often poor people don't have the luxury of quarantining. Which is a weird way of thinking about it, that quarantine would be a luxury. But it is in a way, because you can't do it if you can't work from home, and you have to make a living. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week, and we'll dig a little deeper into why some people who are out of work right now are having such a hard time collecting unemployment insurance. The reasons go way back. They uh, wanted to have white wages and black wages. Like really written out that way. Written out that way, because that's how they operated in the South. That's next time on The Uncertain Hour. And send us your questions. We'll look into them if we can. Or you can email us. The address is uncertainhour at marketplace.org. Our producers are Peter Balanon-Rosen, Chris Julin, and Caitlin Esch. Our editor, Catherine Winter. Our intern, Daniel Martinez. Our engineer is Daniel Ramirez. Our digital team is Tony Wagner and Erica Phillips. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. 
Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. And Nicola Twilley, who you heard from in this episode, has a podcast that you should check out. It's called Gastropod, a show about food through the lens of history and science. It's really good. <laughs> 